All right, there we go. All right, I was saying, every time we gather as a church family, we're going to be talking about Jesus. Pretty straightforward, right? Well, it, it would be, except our culture has a lot of different views of Jesus that span a pretty wide spectrum of, of opinions. There's the very pious and the very reverent to the more hostile and antagonistic. There are views that are kind of aloof, maybe a little bit cynical, and then there are views that are frankly absurd and ridiculous. And I know this because I've spent this week scouring the internet, that great source of information and opinion, and have brought back a few images that just demonstrate what we're talking about here. So can we get the first one up on the, on the screen there? Okay, so this is a, uh, I think, fairly reverential, fairly uh, pious look at Jesus. It's the more Roman Catholic view. I have no idea what the flaming heart is, to be honest, and um, I'm pretty sure Jesus did not have uh, permed hair and white skin, but that's, that's one particular view of Jesus right there. Let's get the next one. Okay, this one, again, is, is very kind of reverential and pious and awesome, though I'm not really sure what's going on with the red and the white and the blue. I, I think of this as star-spangled Jesus, so, you know, but, but still more in the reverential side. Let's look at the next one. Okay, here we've got a more commercialized, kind of fun-loving, bobblehead Jesus. He's, he's plastic, um, so a little bit, little bit more in kind of the, the silly side. Let's get the next one. Okay, this is a, a reference to a movie that I do not recommend you go see if you haven't already, but suffice to say this is a more cynical, kind of snarky view of Jesus, much less, much less re reverential. And then finally... My personal favorite, uh, Jesus is my homeboy. It's been around a while. I think it comes from a good place. I'm not really sure. But as far as a, a fully orbed, appreciative look at Christ, it falls a little bit short. All right, thanks. So I show you all these to demonstrate that we should not take talking about Jesus for granted. We should especially not take talking about Jesus as he truly is, as the Bible depicts him, as the book of Colossians depicts him. Last week, as we began to go through the great Christological hymn here in the first chapter of Colossians, we got to see Jesus as he truly is, Jesus as Lord over all creation. And this week, as we continue in our study, we're going to get to see Jesus again as he really, truly is, Jesus as supreme over our salvation. And as we unpack the text this morning, we're going to be invited and we're going to be challenged to worship and follow Jesus as the Lord of our salvation. So read with me, if you would, from Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15 and going all the way down to verse 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church, the body. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. 
Father God, thank you for revealing Jesus to us in your word. Would you hide me this morning, Lord, behind your hand and let your people see and hear Jesus as he truly is and nothing more and nothing less. We ask these things in his name. Amen. So from Colossians 1, 18 through 20, we're going to look at four reasons why Christ is supreme over our salvation. The first is that Christ is the head. This language marks a transition in thought for Paul. He has been talking about Christ being the Lord over all creation, and now in this uh, turn in the verses, he's going to be advancing in salvation history. He's going to be going from creation onto the fall, redemption, and consummation. And we know this because he is talking about the church, and he is talking about Christ's relationship to the church. And the church is unique. There is nothing like the church in all the world. Uh, you are probably aware that you had other things that you could be doing this morning. You could be playing a round of golf, you could be taking a walk in nature, you could be watching a pregame show on TV, but instead you are here and this place is unique. There is nothing like this. Although it is a gathering of people, there is no gathering in our society that is like the church. There is no club, there is no team, no society, no group. There is nothing in all the world that is like the church. The reason for that is the church is central in God's plan of salvation. Ever since the very beginning, since God created our four parents, Adam and Eve, and placed them in the garden, God has wanted a people for himself. He's wanted a people that would get to enjoy all that he is and all that he has made them to be. And of course, if we've read the Bible, we know the rest of the story. We know that Adam and Eve sinned, they fell, they took the world with them, and ever since then, the world has not been as it should be. But God has never for a second lost sight of that amazing, magnificent dream. God has never stopped wanting a people for himself. And ever since our first parents fell, he has been separating men and women from the world and gathering them into a unique people for himself that he would get to enjoy and would get to enjoy him. We see this in the Old Testament as God sets apart Abraham's family and promises to make a nation out of them. And then in the New Testament, we see God taking Gentiles, taking non-ethnic Jews and bringing them together into one true spiritual family of Israel called the church. Two weeks ago, when DJ unpacked verses 13 and 14 of this chapter, we read that Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The church is absolutely central to God's plan of salvation. When God saved you, he did not save you to then fly solo. You weren't flying solo before you were saved, and you're not going to fly solo now. Rather, Christ has taken you from a collective hole of darkness and death, and he has placed you into a collective hole of light and life. And over that collective hole, Jesus is the head. He exercises authority. He rules and reigns over the church just as he rules and reigns over all creation. So Jesus, who accomplished your salvation, now rules and reigns and exercises authority over you as you are a part of his kingdom, his church. But if we stop there, we can think of this in very cold, very formulistic, 
systematic language as though Jesus is way over here and he's the head and he exercises authority and we're way down here and we submit to him and, that, and that's more or less how it works. But Paul uses different language from that. He uses very organic language. He speaks of us being a, a body that Christ is literally connected to as the head. So it's very warm language. It's personal language. It is very intimate language. See, Christ has not simply brought you into a group of people that follow him together, that gather once a week to hear the voice of a distant God. Rather, he has brought you into himself. He has brought you into a body over which he is the head. And it is here in this place that you will get to enjoy all that God meant for you to have from the very beginning. You're going to get to enjoy God himself here in the body. And if Jesus is the head of the body, by extension, that means that nobody else is. Nobody in the Colossians' day, no false teacher, no persuasive peddler of pagan philosophy, nobody could just roll up there on the Lord's day and say, I have authority over this body because that authority belongs to Jesus and it belongs to no one else. And that means that nobody in our day can roll up here and claim to have authority over this body either. DJ and Dave and I, we are not the head of this church. We are under shepherds taking our cue and our marching orders from the chief shepherd. We take our cue from John in John chapter 3 where he uses this wedding language and he says, I'm here at the wedding, but I'm not the groom. I am here to watch the bride be given to the groom and to cheer that on. Your fellow pastors and I rejoice because we get to watch you, the bride of Christ, be given to Christ the groom and get to enjoy him, all that he has wanted for you since the very beginning, for you to enjoy him and for him to enjoy you forever. That is Christ's headship over the church. He saved you not merely because it was the best alternative to hell, but he saved you because he wanted you for himself forever. Uh, you may be familiar with J.R.R. Tolkien's famous novel, The Lord of the Rings. It was made into a film trilogy about 16 years ago or so. If, if you've not watched it, that's your assignment for this week. Go and watch all, <laughs> all 11 hours of that, of that amazing movie trilogy. But if you've not seen it, there's a, a protagonist in there, one of many. His name is Aragorn. Uh, and he is a great warrior, he's a great leader, he fights awesome battles, he endures terrible hardships against this horrible, world-consuming evil that threatens every single person in the story. And at the end of the, of the book, Aragorn is triumphant. He wins the great victory, he vanquishes the great evil, and every single living person in the world benefits from his victory. But the book doesn't end with uh, a parade a celebration. It doesn't even end with Aragorn's coronation as king. But the book ends with a wedding. Because the whole time, the person that Aragorn has really been fighting for is a beautiful princess. And the book ends with their wedding because Tolkien, who was Catholic, understood that Christ did not just come into the world to vanquish Satan's sin and death and win this awesome victory, but he came into the world to save his bride, to save his particular people and save them for himself, that they could enjoy him and he could enjoy them for all eternity. Are you worshiping and obeying Jesus this morning 
as the head of the body, the church. Ask yourself, why did you come here this morning? Did you come here for a free cup of coffee, to see your friends, have free childcare for an hour and a half, to be entertained? If so, I'm very sorry, I'm not that entertaining. Or did you come here to worship and delight in Jesus, the head of the body, and then obey him as the head of the church? Because that is what he is. And that is the first way in which he is supreme over our salvation. But his supremacy is not confined merely to the role he now enjoys as head of the body and the church. But it is also shown in his glorious victory over death itself. And that is the second way in which we see that Jesus is supreme over our salvation. Because Christ is firstborn and he is preeminent. Continuing there in the second half of verse 18. I want you to notice the parallel here between verses 18 and the earlier verse 15 that we looked at last week. In verse 15, Christ is said to be the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. And now in kind of a parallel statement, he is said to be the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And the reason for this is that in dying on the cross for our sins and rising again, Christ has brought about a new creation. He says in the book of Revelation, Behold, I am making all things new. You see, Christ comes into the world as a second Adam. He comes into the world to fix and to undo what Adam and Eve did that broke the world and make the world as it should be. And so it is entirely fitting that Jesus, who is the beginning, the original creation, creation the, the agent, the sphere, the goal of all creation, the one who accomplished creation, it is fitting that Jesus be the beginning of the new creation as well. And that parallel helps us to make sense of why he is called here the firstborn. Last week, David explained to us that Christ being the firstborn of all creation does not mean Jesus was the first created thing. Rather, that all things were created through him and for him, and that he now exerts lordship over all things. Well, in much the same way, talking about the resurrection, Jesus is not merely the first person to be born, as though there, or born again, rather, as though there was a, a lottery, as though he got the lucky scratch-off ticket, and he's the first person to be resurrected, and somebody's second, and somebody's third, and he just kind of got lucky. But rather, Jesus is the one in whom everyone who rises again is, is included. Everyone is united to him by faith, and he exerts lordship over them, over all who rise from the dead. John Calvin, right, commenting on this passage, notes, he is called the first begotten from the dead, not merely because he was the first that rose again, but because he has also restored life to others, as he is elsewhere called the first fruits of those who rise again. And Peter O'Brien notes that Christ is not just temporally the first in the resurrection, but he is the first in authority, and he is the first in sovereignty. And the purpose of all this, Paul tells us, which is really the purpose of all these titles and accolades and honors that he's been ascribing to Christ throughout this passage, the purpose of all this is so that Jesus Christ might be preeminent in everything. This was God's plan, God's purpose for which he created the world in the first place so that Christ would come into the world to save us from our sins and rise again as the firstborn from the dead, just as he is the firstborn over all creation, is so that Christ might be preeminent in everything. 
Have you ever wondered what is the purpose of your life? Or what is the purpose of life in general? Have you ever asked yourself, is there some reason for existence beyond just getting up in the morning and going and working your job to make money and pay the rent so that you have a place to sleep at night so that you can rest up and then do it all again the next day? Brothers and sisters, your life does have a purpose, and this is it. The purpose of your life is to become part of Christ's body through faith, to be made one with him, to be restored to new life with him by union with him, and to lift him high along with all creation as the firstborn and preeminent over all things. Does that excite you this morning? If it doesn't, perhaps it's because our culture tells us that self-exaltation and self-actualization are the things we should be striving for. That if we are not fulfilling every single one of our deepest desires as often as we possibly can, we are suppressing and harming our true selves. But the Bible tells us, and Jesus tells us, that what our culture is telling us is a demonic lie that it is a satanic deceit from the pit of hell and that real lasting joy is found by turning our backs on self-gratification and self-exaltation and self-actualization and instead living for the glory of another. If you think about it, this is kind of an ingrained tendency in us anyway, that we, we want to find our glory and our joy by seeing someone or something else receive glory. This is, the, this is the only thing that I can think of that makes sense of the prevalence of spectator sports in our species because we love to watch our favorite athlete or our favorite teams receive glory and success and honors and accolades and somehow feel by extension like we're sharing in that. Even if we're not into sports, this is why we gravitate towards celebrities, towards authors, entertainers, writers, artists. It's why we get defensive about our favorite vacation spot, our favorite restaurant, our favorite technology brands. We argue, you know, Apple versus Windows versus Google, and we get defensive, and we get defensive about those things because we want to see the things that we love, the things that we cherish. We want to see those things receive glory and in this weird, extensive way, find our glory in the thing that is glorified. Brothers and sisters, co-heirs with Christ, one with him through your faith. Jesus Christ has achieved a greater glory than any entertainer, any athlete, any team, any celebrity, any politician could ever hope to achieve, and he invites you to find your glory and your joy in his glory and his honor and his success and worshiping him and giving him glory. Are you doing that this morning? Are you living for the glory of Christ or are you holding back in some way? Are you still buying that lie that the only way to make yourself happy is by living for yourself and fulfilling all of your hopes and your dreams and your plan for your life? That life is a bad joke. Drop it today. Resolve that you will instead live your life for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I promise that as you do that, the Holy Spirit, who loves to give glory to Jesus, 
He will work in your heart. He will reshape your desires so that you more and more earnestly desire the joy of Christ from your heart. And make no mistakes, brothers and sisters. When you are living for Christ Jesus, you are living for Almighty God. That is what Paul is getting at in verse 19, where we see the third way in which Christ is supreme in our salvation. Verse 19 begins, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, the Greek word in verse 19 is hote, which I always want to read as hottie, uh, which fits because Paul's got some hot stuff for us right here. I know that was weak. He's going to tell us in verses 19 and 20 the reason why Christ gets to be preeminent over everything. And there's admittedly some very confusing language here. And here's where it helps to know a little bit of Greek and know a little bit of context because we need to know what Paul is not saying about Jesus in this verse. First, that word fullness. The Greek word there is pleroma, and it means fullness. It's, it's pretty well translated there. Uh, but that is, word doesn't mean a whole lot to us. We hear the word fullness, and we might think about how our stomachs feel after a big Sunday dinner, right? But in Greek philosophy, the word pleroma came to mean emanations. It refers to these angelic beings, these, these spirits, this kind of cluster of, of folks around God, like they're God's posse, uh, and they surround God. And if you want to get to God, you have to go up through them. Well, Paul is not saying that about Jesus. That's not the way he is using this word. He is saying that God in all his fullness, in all of his wisdom and power and goodness, all that God is, is what Jesus is. It means that Jesus is fully God. And it means that there's no mediator we need to go through besides him. There's no angelic being, no spirit, no power that we go through to get to God. Rather, we go through Jesus Christ, the one mediator, the one in whom God in all his fullness dwells. So that's where he's going with fullness. What about pleased to dwell? This is where it's really important to understand the Old Testament background to Paul's thought. Because if we're not careful, we can read this language as describing some time in the past where Jesus became God or was co-opted by God or, or joined the Trinity. And, and we could read it that way, but we would be falling into an ancient heresy called adoptionism that essentially teaches that Jesus was born an ordinary human being and that at some point in his life, Maybe when he was baptized, perhaps, he got co-opted by, by God and joined the Trinity and kind of was adopted into God. Well, that's not what we believe as Christians. We just read the Apostles' Creed a few minutes ago, and what did we read? We read that Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That means that Jesus was born 100% fully God. So that's not what's going on here. The best way to understand what is going on here is by going back to the Old Testament. There are several places where it speaks of God choosing a place where he is going to dwell, God being pleased to dwell. And I'm just going to read one. It's Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, where it says this, But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit... 
And when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. See, you catch that language there. God choosing to make his name dwell in a certain place. You see, in the Old Testament, there is this hope and there's this promise that God is going to dwell with his people. Again, this idea that God wanted that in the beginning, sin has come in and ruined that, and God wants to get us back to that point. And there are places where it gets really, really close, especially in the nation of Israel, especially in the building of the tabernacle and the building of the temple, but then, then sin will come along and it'll wreck it again, so it never quite gets there in the Old Testament. But there's this running promise, there's this running hope throughout the Old Testament that one day, one day we're going to have God come and dwell with his people the way he always wanted to. And now in Jesus, that day is finally here. God has decisively come to dwell with his people. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. In John 1.14, he writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this language about God being pleased in His fullness to dwell in Christ does not refer to Jesus becoming God or being adopted into God, but it refers to Jesus coming into the world to dwell with God's people. So in summary, Paul is not affirming Greek philosophy in this verse, and he is not saying that Jesus was adopted into the Trinity. He's telling us at least three things. One, that Jesus is fully God. He's got all the fullness, not part of it, not some of it. He's got all of it. Second, that Jesus is the only appointed mediator between God and man. There are no emanations. There are no angelic beings. There's no uh, spirits to go through, you just go through Jesus because he's God. And finally, he's saying that salvation comes from God alone. It is God reaching down to man to save us. It is not us reaching up to God asking to be saved. Jesus, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, is the one who accomplishes our salvation. And that is why Jesus has the right to be preeminent over everything because he, the supreme Lord of our salvation, is 100% fully God. Are you thinking this morning about Jesus the way that Paul thinks about Jesus? Do you think of Jesus as 100% God, totally God, all that God is dwelling in him? Or do you think of something else as having just a little bit of God, just a little bit of that fullness dwelling in it. If there is something this morning that you are loving more than Jesus Christ, you are making of that thing a God. And the Bible calls this idolatry. Idolatry is an inherently ironic thing because it takes something that is meant to serve us and instead we turn it around and we serve that thing. The clearest picture of this irony comes from Isaiah chapter 44, verses 13 to 17, which I'll read for us. Isaiah writes, the carpenter stretches a line. 
He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down the cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat, he roasts and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into an idol, his God, and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. Do you catch the irony here? A guy goes to the forest, he chops a tree down, he cuts it in half, half of it he uses to make dinner and warm himself up, and then the other half of the very same wood he just got done burning, he makes into an idol and he bows down to it and says, deliver me, you are my God. It's ridiculous, right? Who would do this? Who would take something they used to meet a bodily need and then make it into a God? But we do that. We do that with food. We do that with drink, we do it with rest, we do it with, with all manner of things. Whatever you love this morning more than Jesus, you are worshiping as your God. You are saying of that thing, that possession, that hobby, that person, that achievement, that job, that sports team, you are saying you are the head. You are the firstborn. You have the preeminence over all things. All the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in you. That is what we're saying. And brothers and sisters, I beseech you. The Bible tells us that the idolatrous will not see God. Repent of your idol today. And see Jesus as who he really is. Not as sort of God, not as kind of God, not as co-God with something else, but 100% God. Now, having asserted that God in his fullness was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ, Paul goes on to tell us what God did through Christ in his earthly ministry. And this brings us to the final reason why Jesus is supreme over our salvation, because Jesus is the reconciler of all things. In verse 20, I'll just read that. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This right here is what we've been working up to for two weeks. This is the high point of the hymn. This is the top of the mountain of praise that Paul has been scaling ever since verse 15. And again, there's parallel language here between this, verse 20, and verse 16. Back in verse 16, we saw that by him, that is by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, it hasn't been explicitly stated up to this point in the hymn, but ever since creation, ever since all things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus, something has gone horribly, 
horribly wrong. And this is implied by the fact that Paul uses the word reconciliation because reconciliation does not take place unless there has been a rupture in a relationship. And make no mistake, since creation, there has indeed been a rupture. Something has happened so that God's good creation in Christ Jesus is not as it should be. Paul in Romans 5.12 writes that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You, you might know the background to this, that God created two human beings, Adam and Eve, and he placed them in the Garden of Eden with, with no sin, with no sinful nature to tempt them, with complete freedom, and one command, do not eat of the fruit of a certain tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And the day that you eat of that, you will surely die. And tempted by Satan, tempted by the lure of autonomy, of being gods unto themselves, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they let sin into the world, and death came in by the same door. Brothers and sisters, death is unnatural. This is not the way that God meant for things to be. Remember that we saw earlier that God has always desired a people for himself, that we would live with him and enjoy him. It was never God's intent that we would have mass shootings or that we would get sick or that we would get old or that we would have Alzheimer's and dementia and heart disease and cancer. But sin has come into God's world and death has come into it along with it. And this rupturing of God's creation hasn't just affected people. Paul says in Romans 8 that creation has been subjected to futility and frustration, that it is in bondage to decay. This natural world is not as it is meant to be either. This world was meant to be our home with God where we would dwell with him. Our world was never meant to have wildfires and hurricanes and earthquakes and tsunamis and mudslides and drought and famine. But because sin has come into this world, it is not as it should be. It is decaying. It is corrupted. And we are decaying and corrupted in our bodies right along with it. But God has not left us in this state. He has not left the world in its fallen condition, and that is why God in all his fullness was pleased to dwell in Christ and come into this world to accomplish reconciliation through him. Jesus Christ came into the world that was made by him and through him and for him, the world that our first parents wrecked, the world whose misery you and I add to every single day by our sins. He comes into this world and he puts all things to rights. And I do mean all. Paul says that what Jesus has reconciled is not just human beings. That would be amazing enough for Jesus to come into the world that was polluted and darkened by human beings and take on our sinful nature and allow human sinners to kill us so that he could save us from an eternity apart from him to rescue us, to make us his people again, to, to take the crown jewel of God's creation and bring that back to God. If that is all Jesus came into this world to do, that would be amazing enough. But Jesus hasn't stopped there. 
He has come to reconcile all things, whether in heaven or on earth. He comes to put all creation to rights again. Paul writes in Romans 8 that the creation longs, even groans for the revelation of the children of God so that it can be liberated from its bondage to decay and join in the freedom that Christ has promised us. That means that as we wait for the return of Christ and the resurrection of our bodies, we are waiting for the resurrection of this planet, of this galaxy, this solar system, this physical universe is going to be resurrected and is going to be put back the way God always meant it to be. But how? How could something so terrible as the infection of God's people and God's world with sin that produces decay and corruption and sadness and sickness and death, how could that ever be put right? Well, Paul tells us this reconciliation, this peacemaking has been accomplished through the blood of the cross, through the penal substitutionary atonement worked in the death of Christ. Now, this is unpopular territory. I believe this may be the most hated doctrine in all of the Bible, so much so that it has become fashionable for even so-called evangelical Christians to bash this doctrine, to assert that it teaches divine child abuse, to say that this is incompatible with the idea of a loving God. But quite frankly, those objections are just weak tea. Calling this divine child abuse is really a straw man argument because it asserts that the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement teaches that the persons of the Trinity are at odds with each other somehow, that they have two different views of sin, that you have God the Father who is angry at sin but has absolutely no love or mercy towards sinners, and then you've got God the Son who is full of love and mercy and compassion for sinners but has absolutely no anger or wrath towards sin. But that is not what we believe. That is not what this doctrine teaches. That is not what the doctrine of the Trinity teaches. We don't have two separate gods who are at odds with each other and act independently. We have one God. And that one God is full of wrath and anger against sin. But that God is equally full of love and mercy to sinners. And that God, in his love and mercy, voluntarily becomes a man, takes on our nature in the person of Jesus Christ, and he allows human beings who are under the just sentence of his wrath to kill him so that he can take the punishment that they justly deserve. This doctrine does not teach divine child abuse. It teaches that a loving God laid down his life to satisfy his own just wrath against sinners. And as far as claiming that this doctrine is incompatible with the idea of a loving God, that fundamentally misunderstands the nature of love. God is love, but God is not sentimentality. I'll explain the difference. You can have a kind of sentimental attachment to, say, your favorite movie you had growing up as a kid. But that is a very different commitment from the kind that you have towards a family member, your spouse, your kids. 
If you came up to me after service today and said, Tom, you know, your favorite movie as a kid, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, that, that's really not a very good movie. I, I can live with that fact. I, I kind of agree with you now. But if you come up that, that way to me and start talking that way about my wife or my daughters, those are fighting words. And I'm not ashamed of that fact because there is a holy and righteous anger that is aroused in us when something that we love is threatened unjustly. And that is the anger that God has against sin. God gets angry about sin because God loves his glory. He loves his holiness and he will not see those things demeaned. And God gets angry about sin because he loves people. He loves human beings and he will not see us destroy each other and destroy this world through sin. A God who could wink at sin, who could turn a blind eye to sin, would be unworthy of being called loving and would be unworthy of being called God. The God of the Bible is a God of love. And that love drives him to anger and wrath against sin, but it also drives him to send his son rather than see his wrath be poured out on human beings. And it drives the son to lay down his life and take that punishment so that we don't have to. And because Jesus has done this, because he has laid down his life, because he has shed his blood on the cross, he has reconciled all things to himself, whether in heaven or on earth, and he has made peace. Are you trusting in the blood of Christ this morning? Are you trusting in the blood that was shed on the cross? Do you see this blood as necessary? Do you see this morning that your sins and your crimes and your rebellion against God have warranted a sentence of fiery wrath and eternal torment in hell and that your only hope is that Jesus Christ has shed his own blood for your soul? Do you see that this blood was necessary? And do you see it as sufficient are you trusting exclusively in the substitutionary death of Christ to absorb the wrath of God against you? Or are you trusting partially in your works, in your good deeds, your Bible reading, your prayer, your evangelism, your tithing, the fact that you are helping to plant a church so that people can hear about Jesus? If you are trusting even a little bit in your works this morning, you are denying that this blood was both necessary and sufficient to make reconciliation between you and God and bring you to peace. For that is what he has done. Jesus Christ has brought about reconciliation and peace through his blood. And for that reason, he who is head of the body of the church, he who is firstborn from among the dead, he who is preeminent in all things, he who is 100% fully God, because of all these reasons, he is supreme over our salvation, just as he is supreme over all creation. And each week at Trinity, we proclaim these things. We proclaim the headship of Christ, his resurrection from the dead, his full deity, his sacrificial death, on our behalf, we proclaim all these things through communion. We remind ourselves that Jesus' blood alone has brought us peace and reconciliation with God. 
and we proclaim it to the world even as the physical creation is groaning and yearning for the reconciliation that will bring it to completion. This is a family meal, and for those of us who are baptized believers in Christ, I invite you to take this meal with us together. But if God has shown you this morning that you yourself have not been reconciled to God by the blood of the cross, that you have not placed your faith in Jesus and repented of your sins, I invite you, while the rest of us are taking the supper, you take Christ. Believe that what the word of God has said about you this morning is true, that this world is not as it should be, and that you are not as you should be. Believe that you are a sinner, that you need to be reconciled to God, and that the only way that this can happen is through the shed blood of his son. And repent. Turn from doing what your fallen, corrupted flesh is telling you to do and run from that and turn instead to do what Jesus Christ is commanding you to do. As for the rest of us, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning as we do every week. I will start us off and then I invite you to read with me the underlying portions of this text. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Our practice each week is to spend some time in reflection uh, while Seth comes up and plays for us. And when you're ready, you're going to walk to the back, tear off a piece of the bread that symbolizes the body of Christ, and you're going to dip that piece into the wine that symbolizes this shed blood of Christ that accomplishes our peace and our reconciliation. And if you brought your tithes and offerings with you, there's a basket where you can give during this time. I'm going to pray for us and then give us some time to reflect and then take communion together as a church family. Let's pray. Holy and righteous God, who created the world, who saw human beings, the people you wanted for yourself, wreck the world, but then nevertheless took on flesh, laid down your life to pay the penalty that we deserved, to rescue us for yourself, by your blood, to reconcile all things to yourself and make peace. You who are fully God, you who are preeminent in all things, Jesus, we magnify you and praise you. And this morning, would you, would you call to our minds the ways in which we are not living for your glory, the ways in which we are not honoring you as God, the ways in which we may be trusting in our good deeds, our own righteousness to save ourselves, or the ways in which we may be seeing our sin as not 
not needing this kind of punishment, not needing bloodshed, will you cause us to repent of those things and celebrate anew your shed blood, your broken body? And would you fill us with your spirit? Would you embolden us to take the message that you have done this to the world? Because the people who are in this world who have not heard, who have not believed, have no hope. They need this shed blood as much as we do. And there is nothing that they can do apart from believing to be saved. Would you call to mind now, Lord, what you would have us reflect on, what you would have us repent and confess. And let us have joy as we celebrate this because you have done it. So that we could have you and you could have us forever. Amen.